0: Well thank you very much for inviting me, it's a great honour. Um, pretty much everything I know about materials I learnt here, and quite a lot of people in this room taught me that stuff. <laughs> so uh, it's quite an honour to be here um, relaying some of it back to you, in, in a, in, with my own twist on it I suppose, and, and not least of course uh, to celebrate Peter Hirsch who taught me in my first year, he, he was, you know, is an inspiration and has had a massive impact on material science. So, so this, this, this department and its wealth of fantastic mature scientists and, and also this the warmth of the department, which I really fondly remember and i 'm glad to see is still here well and I, you know I go to i 've worked in many different departments around the world in my kind of journeyman existence as a mature scientist and I, I always sort of compare them to this department, uh, and very few live up, <coughs> probably none actually anyway right i I was up there, but it wasn't like decked out like this. Uh, came to an open day at Oxford a long time ago before I did my degree here. And I think I saw uh, Jeff Groves demonstrate, and this is one of those moments where I tell people this and they, they, they disbelieve me, demonstrate a cement spring. Does that ring a bell to anyone? Yeah, and I was just like, that is ridiculous, what? That's impossible. And it boom, boom. And I was like, wow, these guys have got something going on. So I present to you my equivalent of that. And it is a piece of self healing concrete. And I think it's this sample, which, which doesn't have as, you know, it's, it's not going to perform to you in quite the same way. But still, in its very existence, is mind blowing. And what I want to try and capture today is just how we ended up being able to create self healing concrete and also all the amazing other things that are about to explode into our lives as a result of material science. In the 20th century, a lot of the basics of material science were sorted out. The 21st century is going to see them in our lives, and it's going to be a very exciting century, and I want to sort of capture that if I can. But before I do, I want to sort of start where we are. This is just a, a picture of an everyday street in London. And you know, it's, it's, you know, you're in your head, you're worrying about this, that and the other, but actually if you just stop and worry about what it's all made of, you realize that everything is made of something and that something is materials. So this is a subject that is really about us and it's about what we have done, civilization. And each one of these materials is a, is a, is a revolution in its own right and without which our lives would be very different. And you don't really have to spend very long and I haven't even tried hard and already You've just each one of these materials ha- does something to us, expresses something about us, it's got a huge amount of material science in it. How did we end up creating something so wonderful as this world around us? This is every bit as complex and as incredible as a, as a rainforest, and people wow about rainforests. And this is the material science equivalent, and it's a city. Where did these materials come from? Well, they spent a long time getting into our lives. And in fact, it's been a, an obsession. And I want to just, instead of talking about all of them, which is impossible, I want to just take you on a quick journey of the history of civilization through the lens of one material. And I could have picked any, but I'm gonna pick glass. It's a particularly good example. Now, this is a pectoral from uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun. And in the middle of this very valuable thing of a, you know, an ex-king uh, of Egypt, um, what you've got is not diamond, not ruby, but a piece of desert glass. And the Egyptians revered transformation. They believed in the afterlife. They decked out their pyramids so that their kings could live in the afterlife. And they valued glass very highly because it was sand turned into this wonderful translucent gem-like material. And they couldn't really make it very well. They used, they, they used to make this blue frit, which they used a lot. And But this stuff isn't that, this is is what's called desert glass, and this is produced when uh, lightning hits pure quartz desert. And if you go hunting uh, for desert glass, there's a a bit of Libya that's very pure quartz. And and they discovered that you could get these almost gem-like bits of glass, but they couldn't repeat it themselves. And it took a long time for people to kind of get the hang of it. And it really is down to the Romans, who turned something that was useful, Aesthetically and wondrous, but then they turned it into a material you can actually use and, and 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 do something with. And they 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 worked out about fluxes, so they worked out how to sort of make it in a sort of low temperature environment. And they learned how to mold it with blow um, glass blowing, so they they invented glass blowing, and this meant that you could have very complex shapes that were sort of tractable. And they they drank wine <laughs> out of this new glass, and they 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 really valued wine. But before this. Moment they couldn't no one could see the color of wine because all other drinking vessels were opaque They drunk out of metal gold silver if you could afford it Pewter, if you couldn't they drank out of wood They drunk out of ceramic and suddenly you had a material that you could really show the color You could show off your vineyard you could show off your riches your sophistication and so wine drinking becomes a visual art and they also invented the window and before this of course <laughs> If you had a big building, you know, you, you could shutter it up, you could put curtains over it. And if you lived in the East, you put paper over it. But the window, a gla- being able to make the thin sheets of this stuff, and they did it again by glass blowing and, and flattening it out, um, was a big revolution. And of course, we all live in houses and today would be very difficult to cope with <laughs> if it wasn't for the window. Um, so that's, that's an incredible achievement. And in the East, this is an interesting sort of quirk of the history of glass, in the East, they were absolute experts at using glass, but not monolithically. They never took to making large batches of glass. They used glass as a glaze for their ceramics, which they were, for a thousand years, they were the best at making ceramics than anyone in, in the planet. And this just, but when you, when you this is a guy um, called um, um, Cyril Smith, who was a, not only a great metallurgist, but also a history, a historian of art. And he went around a lot of the great museums of the world looking at them through the eyes of a metallurgists and a material scientist and looking at the microstructure of the glazes and here are some pictures he took and this, so these, these effects, this is called um, a sort of particular, um, you get this uh, very luminous effect like, like, like um, you get from cat's eyes off the road and it's created by having very small bubbles in the glaze, these weren't accidents, they knew exactly how to make them and they could make them repeatedly in the glass and they made these very wondrous ceramics. And this is called an oil spot effect. And these are actually little crystals. So this is a glass ceramic. And these are little crystals growing as flowers in the glaze. And again, they, they mastered the art of doing this, which means that mastering composition and temperature. But they never made monolithic glass. They never drank out of glass. In fact, if you go to a Chinese or a Japanese restaurant, an Eastern restaurant today, and you see glass on the table, that's a real interloper. That is a 20th century interloper. <laughs> and that had some implications, actually, because Although Chinese did actually have glass lenses in some rudimentary form, mostly if you were over thirty or forty in, in China or Japan, you, and you, you became long sighted or short sighted, that was it. But in the West, um, people started to be able to, to grind glass, and it became actually what it came out of was um, the art of making chandeliers, and so people were very able to, to bounce glass off, uh, bounce light off glass, and that that meant the glass lens was possible, and the, with lenses came. So if you're if you're old now and you, you rely on glasses, you know this is this is a new life view as a scholar. And as soon as you can make a lens, you can make a telescope. <laughs> and without the telescope, you don't really have astronomy at all. You know, because what you can see with the naked eye and what you can measure with the naked eye is very, very limited indeed. And it's very, very hard to believe that we'd have any knowledge of the universe. Or we'd even gone down that road um, without glass in the form of lenses and therefore in the form of a telescope. And, this is borne out by the evidence that actually although the Chinese culture and the Japanese cultures were way ahead of the West for a thousand years, they never developed a telescope and their calendars of holy days which were aligned to the stars were always inaccurate and they one of the things they wanted from the Western scholars who came across the Jesuits was how do we align our calendar to actually so it's accurate and the answer was the telescope and you might argue well if they' had monolithic glass, they would have the lens. Anyway, it's, it, it's not something you can really test, but it's very interesting. And this is another amazing glass um, uh, object. Does anyone have any idea what this is? It's a very, very early form of something that's absolutely fundamental to science and certainly material science. It is a test tube. And it's an early test tube used by people like Priestley. And, and before this, all, 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 all chemistry and alchemy was done in, in furnaces and with uh, opaque um, crucibles. And of course, ch- seeing color changes and seeing transformations while smoke is billowing up in your face is very difficult and they would pour it out onto the, onto the top or they'd try and do it on the tabletop. And as soon as they realized you could do aqueous chemistry and you had a material, you could see things happening immediately, a precipitate forming, well, that changed everything. And you can't imagine a subject like chemistry Materials chemistry, you can't imagine it without glass. It's impossible. It almost wouldn't exist, that subject. Um, and then, you know, come on, let's get really important without glass. I mean, before this, as I was saying before, you had glasses. They were, they were, the Romans amazingly actually democratized glass, but that didn't really last after the Roman Empire fell. So basically beer, as a tradition of drinking, was again through opaque mugs, mostly pewter or um, uh, wood uh, or ceramic. So people didn't know what the color of their beer looked like. Until, in Bohemia, people started being able to mass produce glass, and suddenly they saw what they were drinking, and about ten years later, lager is born. Okay, this is a beer designed only to look good, and <laughs> who cares what it tastes like? And that history has continued. But the irony is, the only beer you can, accurately, um, you can actually identify in a glass these days is the, is the very opaque beer they were trying to get away from, Guinness. So there's that, and, and this beer is drunk mostly in cans, an opaque material. Anyway, um, then of course Pilkington's, and you get the float cast process, this is north of England here, and you get a new type of city life. And without flat glass in a large form, well, you know, our lives would be very different indeed. So glass just, you know, it just goes on and on. Anyone know which type of glass this is that really transformed the movies, and in, in particular, a certain type of movie? This is, of course, Jaws. Fiberglass, exactly, JAWS is made of fiberglass. <laughs> and once, once you have a material that is lightweight but strong, has a combination of properties, um, and you have fibers of glass hanging around the lab, then you have people who fiddle around with it and you find that light doesn't actually travel in straight lines. If you're clever, it can travel down a glass um, thread and that, that's the optical fiber is born. And telecommunications today wouldn't be the same without this, in fact, almost all our conversations are carried and data are carried down optical fibers. Again, glass. And this is a very exotic form of glass, and I want to show you this because I've got a sample here. This is an aerogel, was until very recently the lightest material that we'd ever created. And you're very welcome to come and have a look at this in a minute. I'm going to show you this, um, um, I've got a little microscope here, which I can just put a macro lens on. And I just bring it up, okay. So there we are, this is, probably can't see, it's, it almost doesn't exist because it's 99.8% air. So the, the boundary between this and the air is very, is almost nothing, <laughs> and this is a form of glass which was used, sent up by NASA to collect space dust um, and is, is, is still used for that and many other things. So, so glass is quite a fascinating example of how it sort of transformed our lives, and when you ask where the material science comes into it, what you find is that actually the, the crucial bit, of, Insight that material science gives you is that the size and the microstructure really matters, and the different scales inside glass really matters. So you have, basically have history of arts, you have history of, art, of artisans, you have history of chemists and physicists all using this material, but it's not until material science come along and say, look, there are different structures within glass, that if you want to change a certain property, you have to understand the structure at a particular scale. So it turned out, much, I guess, to everybody's surprise, that strength was not really dominated down here, where the bonds were, but because it's a brittle material, it was about the biggest defect. And often, and the reason why you couldn't have big, slight, uh, big uh, glass panes in the past, and why stained windows had lots of um, leaded filaments was because they just couldn't make it strong enough. They couldn't make glass with, with small defects in it. And, and reducing the defect size has meant that we've got bigger and bigger panes of glass. And anyone here has got transition lenses? Has anyone got transition lenses? <laughs> Well, that's just a piece of chemistry where you, you, silver bromide chemistry inside the glass. So you get a solid state reaction. Um, Light comes in, it photocatalyzes exactly the same way that photography works. You get a little crystal of silver and then that that will actually dissolve back into the glass in real time (laughs) inside the glass. And you can see them here and they're really beautiful things. And so you can get wondrous effects that seem like magic, but if you understand what's going on, you can then modify them. and uh, electrochromic glass is coming, so this is glass where you can change the opacity by fiddling around with the electron states down here, so this is where quantum mechanics comes in. And you'll start to understand that you can do some very clever things. Um, I mean, the blind might be dead in the future because electric, electrochromism, which means you can put an electric field across it and it'll go opaque, this, this might become standard in everyone's home. <laughs> At the moment, in, in, in cocktail bars, uh, in the toilets, and... Um, <laughs> I, I regret to say, and you mustn't get drunk when you go in them, because if you close, don't close the door properly, it doesn't ever go opaque. <laughs> Not that that happened to me. And um, so, so this, is, this is the key insight, the material science insight, and this, is, this allows lots of things to happen, and this is just glass. So when you sort of widen it out to all materials, you find that actually the scale of things and understanding the scale of things is, is a big deal, and, and, the, and fi- understanding the physics and the biology that's happening at these different scales is, is the key thing, and I want to just Again, give you a little bit of an insight into that, although most of the people in this room know more about it than anyone else. But I have got this rather wonderful microscope. So this is a little handheld microscope, so anything you put underneath it, you can see. This is my shirt. Yes. At a small scale, it isn't so garish, I find. (laughs) That's how I choose my shirts, by the way. I take this into the the shop. I'm like, I want to just see what the workmanship is like. Oh, yes. And of course, you can get to know the back of your hand really well properly by looking at it like this. And you can check how good your shaving is. And the thing is, of course, the truth is that no one looks good under very close scrutiny, not men, anyway. Um, But you can also discover how the stuff around you works. So if I put this on the microscope and look at itself, you see that actually the the screen is, as you might expect, made of pixels that are green. White, sorry, green, blue, and red, and there they are, all lined up in different proportions. Um, and I can also do this. So this is what a rabbit fur looks like. and this is what a human fur looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and the world is just wonderful at the microscope. I mean you, and that, this is just times 50, so you can keep going down and down and down. and, and this is the interesting thing so. If you look at teeth, this is a a tooth from a jaw. You see actually that it has many different layers, many different structures. And there's just an infinite amount to explore down there. And this is the sort of genius of material science, which is that it's not fixated on one particular scale, but on all scales and the ones that you need to find out about. So once you've had that insight, then some things become possible. And this brings me onto a particular insight by Peter Hirsch, which is, this is the 1950s, where they first getting the electron microscope up, and, and it's also with um, uh, Mike Whelan, of course, his, his, his well-known collaborator. Oh, on, let me just, I'm hoping this is, a, this is gonna be a movie. So this is, this is some of the early movies they made looking down the electron microscope, and I find them just really compelling, because this is, this is people understanding metals and the strength of metals. And, and up to this point, dislocations were theoretical, people knew that they could work, they could explain the crystallinity of metals, but they'd never seen them. And suddenly, you're opening up this new world down here, and it looks like flying over Britain, you know, with all the little hedgerows and the different fields. But actually, these are crystals, and those little wiggly lines, they are these fated dislocations that have been thought of for about 50 years beforehand, and they're moving. And that's extraordinary, because now you have something like a metal, a solid metal, and the reason it's not behaving like a rock is because of these little wiggly lines, and they can see them under the microscope. And it's all very blurry, but this turned out to be 50 years of, <laughs> 50 years of work, working out exactly how these work and how they move around. But to find out that the inanimate objects around us, the stuff we we're making steam engines out of and planes, and all these, the stuff, that stuff, had this internal world, this kind of mechanics which explains why the properties are so good and you can start manipulating the properties. That, that was a huge insight and of course, uh, Peter Hirsch and his coworkers deserve enormous credit for having worked that out. Um, but they also opened up the door to just everything because if you look at this diagram, on the one hand here I've got, this is the kind of man-made world and here I've got some of our great kind of achievements, let's say. So, you know, obviously mobile phones and robots and big buildings, we talked about glass and big buildings and, you know, the mechanics of robots. And it's all about miniaturization. So these little devices here, which is as small as a hair, well, these, you know, these are called MEMS devices and they can work out which way up your mobile phone is. They can do tiny little measurements. They can squirt liquids through things. So things like lab on a chip and your mobile phone being able to sniff the world and work out what's in it, these are all happening at the moment and uh, it's microfluidics. And here, these, you know, as you go down and down, you find things are made of crystals, and you can, as we've just seen, you can understand the crystals and how they interact. And then you can take a single crystal, and you can work out its electronic properties, and, and it turns on and off under certain conditions very reliably, and you get the transistor. And you, you link together billions of transistors, and you have the integrated circuit, you have the computer, so you have so much of modern life. And then we go down here to the nanoscale, where it turns out that something's self-organized and there's even more kind of intricate behaviors that you can start to un- understand using quantum mechanics and, and other theories. And all you have to do is skip across to the other side of this diagram here and see that this is the living world. And the living world, of course, has exactly the same scales. It has things like atoms and molecules, like DNA down here. And actually it has macromolecules, which which, you know, are incredibly complex but reliable little machines. And when I say machines, they're really mean machines. If you've ever seen the people who study these things, (laughs) you realize that these things, they can actually walk along surfaces, reliably in one direction, and then they can be dissolved away and then reconstituted somewhere else in the cell. And all of the kind of gubbins of the inside of a cell is what we see when we see, let's say, a blood cell. But they're incredibly complex things. And if someone says to you, what is life? You know, you might have, in the 19th century, thought it would be somewhere in here, somewhere microscopically small, somewhere to be identified. But so far, every time we look at one of these systems, we find that it obeys all the laws of physics and chemistry. So each one of these systems is understandable in the same way that we've managed to understand this side of the equation and make amazing things. And yet, this side of the equation (laughs) can do so much more than we can. This side (laughs) can make a mouse and a flea and a whale and self-healing things and things that can fly and things that can reproduce themselves. So one of the big head-scratching things I want to talk about now is: how is it that the living side of the world, which has the same microstructures, can do so much more than we can do? and could we ever emulate it? Um, OK, so the reason I want to ask that question is that when I was young, I watched this TV program, "The Six Million Dollar Man," and then the Bionic Woman," which wasn't as good actually, although it's good that there was existed for uh, <laughs> equality reasons. But I don't think they had enough, they didn't have as much, they weren't really bringing as much to the table with the woman, they didn't really bring on the concept very far. Now where did that all evaporate to, that optimism? Well, they were waiting I think for us to understand this microstructural world, to understand the biological world. And I think now we're in a position where actually, actually we probably can start to deliver on the better, faster, stronger thing. And I just want to show you really some of the stuff that's happening now in this crossover world between material science and and medicine and biology that's really exciting and is all about rebuilding us. And although when I was a kid, and I actually, I broke, I was actually by accident, I broke my leg, I split my head open, I had a hernia, many other things. I would say to my mum, can they rebuild me? And she would say yes. And she would take me to the hospital and then they would just sort of sew me up or put me in a plaster cast. And that wasn't really rebuilding. And I feel like I was a bit gypped and I quite like my future to be rebuilt. So, of course, we used to now, especially with the Olympic, the Paralympic, we used to now the idea that there are some really amazing prosthetics out there that that are are lighter and stronger than the legs. In fact, Oscar Pistorius had to spend a lot of time persuading the Olympic Committee that his prostheses weren't actually an advantage. Um, And I think... I think people are still not convinced in the able-bodied world that he isn't actually getting an advantage from this. And it probably isn't gonna to be too long before someone um, like him is the fastest man. I would pretty much confidently predict. I don't even, think if you've only seen any seen of the modern prosthetics, but they're not just carbon fiber um, blades, which was what his are, these are passive. Okay, so the, there is no energy input. All they are doing is taking the spring, I um, mean the weight, it absorbs the weight into an energy, into a compression, and then it lets it go. But this stuff here is where lots of the action happens and actually you can do a hell of a lot with very smart computation to just change the shape of the prostheses in the same way that your body does this as your your leg hits the ground. And he's not benefiting from that because this is completely passive. But actually the ability to change shape dynamically in real time will really speed them up. Already, already people who wear them, who if you meet people from, who come back from Afghanistan, they already have activated prostheses, which have got little chips in them. And it's all gonna come on really quite fast. And this interaction between electronics and materials is is quite an exciting one. Um, Recently, uh, a woman had a complete jaw transplant, okay? So here we have a jaw, which she was actually printed in 3D. Okay, this is titanium print. I'll show you some of these in, in a bit and the whole jaw was removed and replaced. Now, what is incredible about this technology is just that first you get a CAT scan, or you get an MRI scan, so you get a 3D image of the, of the, of the thing you're gonna replace, and that's a completely digital object. And then you turn a digital object into a physical reality, and there's quite a lot of, um, of different uh, 3D printers, as they're called now, which are able to print lots of different materials. And at the moment, it's been driven by industry. It's been driven by, basically, uh, doctors and surgeons who want to do this sort of thing, or it's been driven by car industry who want to print parts for cars and replacement things. But actually, there's a massive opportunity here for material science to step in because the materials they're using are monolithic and very basic stuff. And they are not as strong as, as, as a kind of a bespoke piece um, because they have lots of defects in them. But the, the microstructure of these is really, is really, I think, a huge opportunity. But, but the fact that this can now happen is really extraordinary. And if you take it down to the next level, um, this is what a lot of people are doing, is they're building structures which when they implant into the body will turn into bone. And um, that seems like fiction, but actually uh, a guy called Larry Hench, who who should be a sort of saint of the material science world, um, came out of the Vietnam War really appalled at how how many US servicemen were losing their limbs. And he, he went looking for materials that could be used as implants, and he found this stuff called Bioglass. And um, there's an enormous industry based on the back of this stuff, because actually what happens is, rather miraculously, is that cells like to live on this material, and when they do live on it, they turn into bone cells. And that's, that's, that, that's only part of the problem, because what happens then is that they'll tend to coat it, and you just get a coating of bone. And what you want is a full 3D bone with all the structures that your own bone has. And that turns out to be the hard bit. So you need to create a scaffold where these bone cells can live until they're, they're, they're mature enough and have enough structure to be able to kind of cope with life on their own. And I've got a bit of that here if you want to see it. Um, so this is, um, this is what that, those little scaffolding looks like there. So they're pitted with little holes you just see it in there, and it's so that the cells can grow into it. These so stem cells grow into it, they turn into bone cells. And they start to differentiate into other cells. And of course you need to get blood in there, you need to get all sorts of other things. Nutrients in and out, and waste in and out. But what you've got is someone creating a monolithic material that actually, when implanted into your, into your body, turns into a living material. So that doesn't seem so far away now from our self-healing concrete, but we're not there yet. Um, so a lot of people now are worrying about okay so so life can create cells and cells are kind of like the lego of 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 the biological world. They seem to be able to build anything they can build a bone, they can build skin, which is basically plastic, they can build hair, they can build teeth, they can build optics I mean that that is an extraordinary thing so working out how, where and how you can manipulate cells to grow the things you want them to grow, in the case of a body, to repair it or to replace parts, is a big science now. And, and this is just another example of people creating what are called scaffold structures. And these are the cells here. And they're, they're like the fact that they're lit up means they're not dead. <laughs> and actually, cells don't like to live most places. And they like to have particular corners. And they like to have particular surfaces to live on. And, and it's, it's a huge growth industry working out how to make cells happy, and then when you make them happy, how to turn them into the cells you want them to turn into. And there's a very odd thing, which is that the shape that you make them live in, a bit like humans, I suppose, if you cram them in, <laughs> they behave in certain ways. And if you let them live out in the open countryside like Oxford, they behave in other ways, thoughtful, intelligent ways. And uh, it's true with cells too. And so the sort of internal material culture of cells and, and scaffolds is, is, is a really... Fascinating product. So if you, if you force them into triangle shapes, they turn into, into one type of cell, and if you make them square, they turn into another type of cell and do different things. Mm. Of all of the things that have happened today in terms of that living up to this, this idea of, of the six million dollar man, this I think is the most impressive. This was last year, and this was the replacement of a windpipe from someone. Now, if you get cancer of the windpipe, In the past, there really wasn't anything they could do for you. They basically had to cut it out so it didn't get secondary cancer, and then you'd have some sort of way in which you might talk through a pipe which you'd breathe through, and you have these weird sort of odd voices, or you might have a microphone system. But what if you could rebuild someone's windpipe? Well, this, this is what they tried to do, and actually this is implanted in a patient today who's alive and has an artificial windpipe. So they created this scaffold structure that they thought the cells from the windpipe would like to live in, and they put stem cells in it. And what they then did is they put them into what's called a bioreactor. This is is just a a place which has got the right humidity and the right nutrients to allow these cells to replicate and turn into windpipe cells and to start to connect up. And once there were enough of them populating the windpipe, the artificial windpipe, they then cut out the patient's windpipe, replaced it with this one. And this (laughs) this is the actual, right, this is the actual one they used. And this is now in a patient who is fully functioning and has been for a year. Now, it could be in five years' time, this is becomes defective, and it could be that, that actually in the end, the body will reject it. We don't know yet. But if this turns out to be to work as well as it might, has, might do, then it opens up the possibility for all sorts of replacement parts of the body, not least liver, kidney, heart. Now, I don't know if any of you know or related to people who need transplants, but it's a miserable life. If you need a liver or a kidney part, you have to wait for, on a waiting list for one to come in and heart transplants are even harder, of course. Um, it's not just the fact that it's inconvenient for people in the West who are rich enough um, to get this surgery. It's, it's having knock-on effects in the developing world. So it's now, does anyone know how roughly how much it would cost for you to sell your kidney if you were in living in a poor place in the world like Egypt? Or it's, it's about $1,000. So you know you you might get and, and if if it all goes well you will get the thousand dollars and they're horrendous stories because what happens is you end up having to go to a hotel you have to meet a donor you get flown to some anonymous place you get put under anaesthetic and then you know you may or may not wake up with or without <laughs> you know being sewn up properly cared for properly given the money properly um, a lot of people are being ripped off and so the, the possibility that actually material science can come to the rescue and and in the next 10 years, create a technology that actually means that you don't have to transplant at all. That everyone who needs a new kidney or lung um, will be able to have one grown in the lab. It's very exciting. And I, and I want to mention this guy, Tony Nicholson. Does anyone know who he is? He died last year. He was a, a normal bloke. Went on holiday with his family. Had a had a, a basically a, a stroke, which basically made him paralysed. He had locked-in syndrome. So basically, he couldn't move any of his limbs. He's sort of in his 50s. Um, he was on holiday in Greece. So he woke up one morning, he could not leave anything. He was locked in, completely mentally active. You know, this is the, in a way, these are the things that, you know, in the ni- 18th, 19th, 17th century, maybe we worried about witches and we worried about demons and we worried about other. This is what we worry about now, right? <laughs> All of us. We worry about something like this happening to us. And it seems he, he basically fought in the courts for five years for the right to be killed. He wanted to kill himself, and he wanted someone to help him do it. And in the end, he died of pneumonia. They rejected all his efforts, and it's still illegal in this country to help someone to die. But look at this case. Um, <laughs> I know, look at that first. Fantastic Voyage. Now that was a brilliant film, and it was all about making little nano things that went through veins and repaired people from the inside. Now that seems ludicrous now, but actually maybe it's not so ludicrous because this woman here, it's also got locked-in syndrome. She's completely paralyzed, but she can feed herself now because they've, put, um, they've managed to wire up her brain with some electrodes, which can, compl- uh, can control a robot arm. And she has learned to think how to move the robot arm. She can feed and, 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 and turn things on and off just with the power of her mind. So actually, people have started to work out how to make this translation between the physical world, the inanimate world, we might call it, and and this biological world. And I think that actually the future for lots of locked-in syndrome people is hopefully going to be not rewiring in the kind of fantastic way that sending little nanobots down, but but actually creating a sort of bypass system, a sort of bionic system. Yes, $6 million man-like and woman. Um, And this, of course, was a great film called The Fifth Element. I don't know if anyone saw this film. This is a ludicrous concept in lots of ways. which was, for those of you who hadn't seen it, all about the world being destroyed by some people uh, who were sort of basically evil. And they had to get the fifth element into a particular position uh, near the pyramids of Egypt in order for it to avert the problem. And uh, this is the fifth element they thought was an object, but actually it was a woman. And when she arrived or got close, they blew her up, except for this little hand that was left. And so they took the hand, they rebuilt her in the film from the hand, they rebuilt the whole person. And of course that just seems madness, doesn't it? But, you say that, <laughs> but you say that, but people are printing organs now. I mean, this is what's so extraordinary about today, is that this is an actual piece of research where people are taking cells, stem cells, taking the 3D printing technology, and they are turning one into the other. And I wanted to show you, in case those of you haven't seen 3D printing stuff, what it looks like these days, because it's come on quite a long way in terms of its complexity. Okay, where's the thing? Okay, so the little camera, okay, so this, this object here, this is printed in one piece. This has got no joins. And all right, so it's not a person. <laughs> it's not a lung, it's not a thing, but this is also, right, this, this. Uh, here we go. This is, this is printed in one piece. It's got cogs, all working parts. This is printed in one piece <laughs> from, from its digital image and all sorts of things now being 3D printed. And I think this kind of the overlap between the digital and, and uh, the scaffolding stem cell work is really gonna yield huge amounts of, of um, opportunities in the future. So just to conclude then really, um, I think that um, it's interesting how Um, We've basically in the 20th century mapped out it's it was basically a hundred years between sort of working out What atoms were and their structure and working out what quantum mechanics was so that's nanoscale Working out the electronics and electrostatics that would allow us to make single crystals and chips Working out how crystals behave and how they can be plastic and that's essentially steel and all the metals and MEMS devices and all these kind of gadgets and gizmos That's taken about 100 years. And each one of these scales is important. They're not more important or less important than each other. People say nanotechnology is amazing. But that's not the lesson you get from biology. It's not that one of these scales wins over the other scale. Well, in my view, if you said to me, what is life? And, of course, that's a big open question, which no one has an answer for. I would say that it's multi-scale communication. So that one scale will communicate with the other scales and react and then change its structure. So in the case of biology, if you change a gene in the DNA, it's not that it miraculously gives you blue eyes or it miraculously gives you cancer. What happens is that changes the machinery inside the cells, changes how the cells behave, changes how the tissue behaves, that tells you how the macrostructure of your body behaves. That might or might not change the function of something like a liver or a kidney and that may or not make you feel better or worse. But it's not just go one way. So you can, you can go and live in a desert and that will change your environment and that will turn on different genes and that will change all the different structures of your being. So we are multidimensional entities, very complex ones, very amazing ones. But we are we're grown, we are material objects too. And so as far as we know, this is all the laws of physics. So we ought to be able to, we ought to, be able to, to do as good. And this is where uh, self-healing concrete comes in because <laughs> Inside this self healing concrete is, amazingly enough, some bacteria. So they they found some bacteria in some highly alkaline lakes which can survive really difficult circumstances and they also can lie dormant for 50 years. So inside this sample are some bacteria that are lying dormant. And when a crack in the concrete is detected, well, it's not really detected. What happens is, humidity gets into the crack and the, the bacteria that are dormant wake up. And when they wake up, they start looking around for food, as we all do, and they find it in the form of starch. And that has been left inside the matrix of the cement. They eat the, c- the starch and they excrete calcite, one of the main components of cement, and they block up the crack. And that you, can get re- you can get 90% back of the strength of this from this mechanism. So this is an example of a crossover between a biological organism, a cell, which is an amazingly complex. But you can see how um, bioengineering of cells to to survive better in that environment is going to happen. And you can see how people are going to design a whole set of bacteria just for concrete, or maybe just for steel, or maybe just for your dashboard. And maybe that will be a synthetic biology, maybe it won't be. But the world of this crossover between traditional material science and the biology, because we understand the scale issue, I think puts material science in a very good position to be at the forefront of this work. And I think that we will actually end up (laughs) being better, stronger, faster. And uh, hopefully, before I get too decrepit, I want to benefit from that technology. (laughs) Um, Okay, and a lot of this is due to amazing people like Peter Hirsch, and I hope that, uh, yeah. Hope you've enjoyed what I had to say and I'll stop there.